So if you have a, a Bible, uh, you can turn to the book of Luke, chapter 2. As a church, we've been working our way through the, the book of Luke. And as I was working on this passage this week, it, it made me think about uh, when, before I was ordained, I interned at Faith Presbyterian in Wilmington, and I helped lead the young adult group there. That's how I got to know Charlotte and Vinny and Chris and... Should I see if anyone else here that, yeah, I got to know there. Um, but every week we would do a, an icebreaker. And so it was always hard to think of. I came up with some pretty crazy icebreakers over that time. Um, but if, if I were teaching this passage to that young adults group, uh, if I would do this as the icebreaker question, that it would be, uh, okay, if you're, if you're younger than 30, what is one story that you think kind of encapsulates your life? Or if you're older than 30, what, what's one story between the age of 1 and 30 that you would say, okay, this one story captures who I am, the essentials about me. And, and as you think about that and mull that over, you might say, well, that's, that's really hard. And I, and I found when I did the icebreaker questions that it was always hard to say what's the most or what's one because people you know, get stuck kind of, well, is it this one? or this other one, but one story that encapsulates life. And, and it's interesting that as we, we look at the, the life of Jesus between the age of one and the age of 30, we know very little from Scripture. Uh, we get some about his birth. We've been looking at that in Luke. And the only other place is Matthew. And then the, basically the next time that Jesus appears in the other Gospels is his public ministry that he began about the age of 30 when he was baptized by John the Baptist. But there's so much, you think, that we want to know about the childhood of Jesus. We want to know, okay, what was he like? You know, people talk about the terrible twos. What was the eternal son of God like when he was two? What, what was Jesus like when he was teething or when he was learning to walk? Or what was his first word? Or how did he interact with his parents? How did he interact with his friends? What did his friends or his siblings think of him? There, there's so much that, that gets our imagination going, and, and we wish that there was more. But the Bible only gives us one story in all of Scripture about Jesus between the age of 1 and 30. And that's the passage, actually, that we're going to look at today. And so we think, wow, in the infinite wisdom of the God... And even as Luke was compiling this story, that this is the one story of Jesus in that time period of his life that he's chosen to give us. And so, I mean, one, it's very precious to the church for that reason, but also I think it deserves special attention of, of why this story, what is so special? What does it bring out about Jesus that encapsulates his, his youth? So again, if, you, if you'll turn to the, the book of Luke, chapter Two, and I'll begin reading in verse 40. And Jesus, the child, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's 
journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have not given us uh, 18 volumes of that fill entire shelf, Lord, um, of Scripture. But Lord, you, you've given us, yeah, a book that is, is long, but you've given us the, really the, the key details that we need. Lord, we, we haven't just tried to fill our curiosity, but you have given us everything that we need to know about you, to serve you, to, to love you. And so, as Lord, as we look at the childhood of, of your son and his incarnation, Lord, I pray that you would, you would guide us, that you would apply this through your spirit. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. And so, as, as some of you know, I have a, a soft spot for church history, and so I, you know, I talk, probably use historical illustrations too much when I preach, um, but I think one of the most fascinating uh, periods of, of church history is between about the year 100 and about 500, the, the earliest period of Christianity. You know, the apostles are, are dead and gone, and they're trying to figure things out, and they're, they're facing terrible persecution from the Romans, but then also wrestling through some of the biggest, most important theological questions. And even today, if you study theology, what we believe about God, the Trinity, the person of Christ, has really not been changed or altered from what, what they um, came to through the study of Scripture and these debates at, at that time. Very important. And one of the, the debates that was especially, um, I guess, controversial, raged, was about the person of, of Jesus. And, and the reason that the debate arose is because they were, they were reading the Bible. They were reading the, the, the scriptures, and they, they saw this clear witness of the Bible that Jesus is fully human, 100% human, and at the same time, he is he's fully God. He is 100% God to be worshipped and to be glorified. And so you, those things both sit in tension. How can they both be true? How is this not a, a contradiction? How do those things fit together? And so people began to fall off theological cliffs in, in different directions trying to, to wrestle through it. And, and so one of the cliffs that, that people would fall off of early on, and it was one of the earliest cliffs that people would fall off trying to, to think about these things, was called docetism. 
And basically what it said is, well, Jesus, yeah, he's really God, but he only seemed to be human. It was all sort of an illusion. People thought he was there, but it was more of a, he just appeared to be that way, which also means he didn't really die. He didn't really rise from the dead. And, and kind of the rationale, they said, well, for God himself to take on a true human nature with all the weakness and limitations, that, that's just shameful to say that about God. But the church really said, no, this is, it's necessary to say that he is fully human, that it, he didn't just appear to be human. He was really human, and it was necessary for him to be the mediator to stand between us and God. But, of course, you can you think about a horse. You can fall off in, in different directions. And so they could fall off in another way, and, and it was called adoptionism. And it was the opposite mistake. And they said, well, he was really human. wasn't really God, but he was kind of adopted later on, became God in some way, uh, became divine, but not fully and completely and utterly God. And, and again, the, the church said no. If he's going to take the weight of God's judgment against sin on himself, that he needs to be God. Otherwise, he couldn't bear it. That he wasn't swallowed up by death on the cross, but rather through dying, he himself swallowed up death. And, and that would only be possible if, if he were God. And so they took both of these, God and man, together and said, no, Jesus, he's, he's both, truly, distinctly. He didn't give up being God, infinite, eternal, unchangeable by taking on human nature, but also being human, he was really actually human. He had the limitations of humanity. He had everything that it is to be human, yet without sin. And so you might think, okay, fine, why, why, why the history lesson? Why the, the theology lesson? And really it's because at the time that, that Luke was writing his gospel, one of the, the earliest heresies that was beginning to circulate in the church was that when I said his docetism, saying ah, he wasn't really human, he just seemed to be human, which is actually sort of the opposite. If you People think, oh, you know, people at the time believed that he was just a good prophet, and later they believed that he was God. But it was actually the opposite, where the, the people who were the closest to the life of Jesus had the easier time believing that he was really God and not human. It was only later that people really started saying, no, he's human and, and, and not God. And so as we look here at this text and this, this one story of Jesus in his childhood, this is the, the big emphasis of Luke. He's saying that Jesus was truly, really, actually human, but even as he shows this, still that, that ray, that glimmer of his divinity shines forth as well. And so, so we see this coming through, the, the divinity and the humanity of Jesus. And so, so let's look at that first part, that his true humanity. And, and really that's the main emphasis that we see here from Luke. And, and we see his true humanity, that he was really actually human, because he went through the process of development like every child, like every human being. Look in your Bible at verse 40. And the child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And then keep that verse in mind and look at the very last verse of the chapter, verse 52. It says almost the same thing. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. 
And so you see that the, they're saying the same thing, that, that it says that, that Jesus went through a, a process of development because he was really human. And, and we, we see it physically. And in verse 40, it says that he became strong. In 52, it says he increased in stature. And so when, when Jesus came out of the womb, he didn't just jump up and start walking around, <laughs> that he was a real human baby, that, that he had to develop strength to, to roll over, to, to lift his head, to, to crawl, to walk, to, to go from baby teeth to adult teeth. All the things that, that a real human baby goes through in physical development, Jesus went through because he was truly and fully human. And then and that's despite the fact that according to his divine nature, he has all strength. He created the world. He upholds everything by the word of his power. It says in uh, Hebrews 1, yet he was weak and grew in strength, and yet God is unchangeable. But then he also says that he grew in, in wisdom. And so this is, this is saying that, that Jesus, he had a real physical body that grew, but then also he had intellectual, mental growth in, in wisdom and understanding that you know, human beings, to be truly human is to be finite, to be, to be limited. You can't comprehend everything at once. And there's so much mystery here, and you have to be, be careful, but it's the clear teaching of Scripture that Jesus, he grew in, in wisdom, he grew in knowledge. That's what, what Luke says. And there, there are certain places in Scripture where it even talks about Jesus not knowing things. It says that no one knows the day or the hour of the second coming. It says not even the Son. But yet, by definition, God knows all things. So according to his human nature, there's some things he doesn't know. According to his divine nature, he knows all. And there's a theologian, John Calvin, who, who just wrestling with this. He, he said, there's nothing wrong. There's no impropriety in saying that Christ, who knew all things, was ignorant of something in respect to his perception as a man. And so that's the witness here, that he, he grew in strength, he, he grew in wisdom. But you might say, well, well why does this matter? Because it, it's so confusing, and it, it, it brings us to the very limit of human reason. Why does Luke go so far as to say that he increased in wisdom, he increased in, in stature? And, and the, the reason is because what Jesus did in redemption is he truly entered into our humanity. That he entered into redemption to, to save us. And there is an early church theologian, Gregory of Nazianzus, who said that what is not assumed is not healed. And basically what that's saying is whatever of our true humanity Jesus does not take upon himself is not healed. And so if Jesus doesn't take on a real human body, he's not going to, our, our body is not going to be healed. If, if he doesn't take upon our, our weakness and our ignorance, that that's not going to be healed. And ultimately on the cross, if he doesn't take our sin upon himself on the cross, that there's no hope of being, being healed and, and redeemed, that he takes on true humanity. And that is just an, an amazing comfort and something that makes Christianity completely and utterly unique in the world. I mean, if you look at a, a religion like Islam, if somebody is, is suffering, they, they couldn't say that, that God understands what they're going through, that God has entered into the, the, the weakness. But in Christianity, 
you can say that, that if you're experiencing weakness, if you're, whatever you're going through in your life, that Jesus entered into those things yet without sin. And so, you know, we have, we have children here that, that Jesus went to school. He, he learned. He sat under teachers, as, as we'll see at the, the temple, that, that, that he, he went through growth pains and, and development. He, he learned things. He understands our weakness. He, he was tempted in every way, yet without sin. And so this, this is such a, a comfort uh, for us that Jesus did this so that we can have life and, and salvation and true hope. But then you might say, all right, so, so Jesus, he grew in wisdom, he grew in understanding, but, but how did he do this? What, what did this growth process look like? And really the, the story then that is sandwiched between, the, the, remember I said that that first and last verse talk about Jesus growing, developing, and wisdom and stature. And the story that is in between that shows how this happened, what it looked like in his life, just as an illustration. And the first thing that you notice here is that he, he grew in wisdom through the influence of godly parents. Look in your Bible at verse 41. It says, Now, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when, his twelve, when, he, wa- when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And so, so Luke is saying that, that Mary and Joseph were very faithful Old Testament believers, that the Old Testament required Israelites to take three pilgrimages a year to Jerusalem. But by far the most important was for this feast of Passover, where they, people would flock to Jerusalem to rehearse and to, to celebrate God's amazing work of redemption of Israel from Egypt through the hand of Moses and how the Lord passed over the, the firstborn of Israel. And according to some estimates, I mean, if you imagine what it looked like, Jerusalem probably had about 25,000 residents at the time, but about 100,000 people would pour into Jerusalem for Passover. I mean, if you've seen pictures even of Mecca, right, where, where Muslims from around the world pour into one place, um, that's, that's sort of what it would have been like, where you have believers from throughout Israel pouring into Jerusalem for worship. And, and it says that, that Jesus went up as well, according to the custom, that a year later at age 13, he would go through uh, bar mitzvah, where he would be considered basically an adult. Um, and so people would go up at 12 and, and learn the law, learn uh, the, the Torah, and so that they could teach it to, to their families and could instruct others. And so Jesus was seeing this drama unfolding. But I, if you think about it, though, at the same time, it wasn't easy to make this, this pilgrimage up to Jerusalem, that it took uh, sacrifice of time and energy, and especially for, for Mary and Joseph. I mean, we, we know already that they were poor. And so to, to take time from the, the field or from the carpentry shop to travel what was about 70 miles, 70, 80 miles from Nazareth down to Jerusalem, dangerous road. Uh, it would have been a very difficult thing to do. And, and so it took a, a commitment from Mary and Joseph to the, the commands of God and this command to, to gather for worship. And, and so we see that Jesus then 
grew in wisdom through the influence of these godly parents who obeyed the commands of Scripture, prioritized worship, even when it was hard and, and when it was difficult. And I think that, that there is application in that for us here today as well, that as New Testament believers, thankfully we don't have to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I mean, I'm sure that we'd love to go to Jerusalem, but it's not something that is, is mandated for Christians in Scripture. But yet there is this pattern in Scripture coming from the Ten Commandments, one of setting aside one day and seven uh, for focus on God, um, but then also to gather for worship. It says in Hebrews 10, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And so there's this command to gather in Scripture, just as there was a command in the Old Testament for Mary and Joseph to go up to Jerusalem, as they did every year. But, but I think sometimes we either don't prioritize it or, or we think, okay, it takes too much time, too much effort. It's, it's not worth it. But yet, God says it that as we grow in wisdom, as we grow in, in spiritual stature, that God uses these things to to grow us in wisdom, to grow our families in wisdom. And so it's something that, I mean, if it was important for, for Jesus and for his family, how much more for gathering for us when, in a sense, that the cost is so much less than it would have been for them. And so we see here that Jesus grew in wisdom through godly parents, but then also he grew through this careful study of Scripture. And we, we see this as the, the story continues to unfold. So, after that, the festival was over. It says that, that Mary and Joseph, they left to head back to Nazareth. And they were traveling with a group. Probably uh, pilgrims would travel with others for companionship, for uh, even protection on the road, made, made it easier to travel. And it says that they, they went a day's journey and then realized that Jesus wasn't there. How, how, did, how did that happen? <laughs> um, so some people speculate that maybe in the caravans, men and women traveled, they would travel together, but maybe there was a, they traveled separately during the day, would reconvene. So maybe Mary thought, okay, Jesus is with uh, Joseph. Joseph said, oh, Jesus is with Mary. They get together. Where's Jesus? <laughs> and, uh, you know, I mean, for any parent, that the moment of terror of, okay, do we know where, where is our child? And it says that they search among their, their friends and their acquaintances. So you can imagine they go to their, their family members. Okay, is, is Jesus playing with the cousins? No. They go, they go to the acquaintances, everyone else in the camp. Okay, is, is Jesus here? Have you seen him? And, and I'm sure that they had, didn't keep tabs too much because this is the, the sinless son of God who's fully man and fully God. And so, okay, I can trust him. If he says he's going somewhere, that's where he's going. But yet they can't find him, that the terror begins to, to set in. And I, but my, my dad actually tells a story similar where when he was a child, they were on a vacation, his sister was sleeping in the back seat, they stopped at a gas station, everybody went in, the sister went in, and, but people didn't notice, they got in the car, drove off, she came out, and they thought she was still sleeping in the back. And so then she, and before cell phones, and she's just hanging out at the gas station alone at night. And I think they drove for, I don't remember how long, but I think it was over an hour, and then realized she's not in the back seat. Oop, turn around and go back. That's sort of the, the, the sense here that, that's happening with, with Mary 
and Joseph, and you know, and, and, he, and people are, I hear you chuckling, and I think that there is humor here, even I think Luke intends it, and, and so I, don't, I think it's even fair to, to think, okay, what was the conversation going back to Jerusalem, right? The, you lost Jesus. <laughs> no, you did. <laughs> or, uh, okay, how, how are we going to explain this to the angel Gabriel next time he shows up, right? Like, we lost the Messiah and the Savior of the world. Okay, this, is, this is, isn't good. Now, as I was studying this and, and looking at applications, I came across an application of this from a guy named Matthew Henry who lived in the 1600s. And at first I thought this was a little bit of a stretch and was reading into it but I thought it was a really helpful insight. And it said that, okay, they, they've, they've lost Jesus. But even for believers, there are times when we lose a sense of the presence of Christ in our lives. And it could, could be through, through negligence, through misunderstanding of some way, where it's, okay, I used to really know Jesus is here, but now I don't sense him here at all, and, and what Matthew Henry says is when that happens, that there's something to learn from Mary and Joseph and the fact that they said, you know, okay, we, we are going to search high and low until we actually find Christ. We're going to talk to our friends. We're going to talk to our family members. We're not going to rest until we find him. And that, it's the same for us, to, to not rest, to know that, 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 that Jesus, that, that's what we seek is the presence and the relationship with Christ and that, that he is to be sought above all things, that the pearl of great price. And so that as Mary and Joseph then are, are searching for Jesus, um, it, they, it says three days. Probably it was a day out, which is about 20 miles, day back, 20 miles, and then the third day searching Jerusalem. And then they're shocked when they finally find him. At, and, and so look at, at verse 46. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And so where is Jesus? Well, he's immersed in the study of Scripture. He's sitting with the leading theological minds of the time, studying God's Word. And usually students would stand and the teacher would sit, but it says he's sitting with the teachers, so I mean, already they're saying, okay, let's talk. We're kind of on par here. Let's have a, have a conversation. It says that he was, he was both listening to them. He was asking questions. He was giving answers. And that everybody who was around was amazed at his insight into the word. But this is part of the, the growth process of, of Jesus as truly human. That it, he grew in, in wisdom and and. He grew in wisdom through studying scripture, through, at that point, learning Hebrew, through asking questions, through listening to, to teachers, but also not through blindly accepting everything that he heard. But I mean, I'm sure that even at that point, he was challenging assumptions and seeing through bad arguments and probably really giving the, the teachers a run for their money and understanding. And so if this is how Jesus was growing in, in wisdom, then this is also how we grow in wisdom, that, that if the, the eternal Son of God who took on a true human nature needed to study Scripture and ask questions in order to grow in, in wisdom, how much more do we, as, as people who, who aren't sinless, who do struggle 
in so many ways. And, and to take the, the, the example of Jesus, of, of this, this asking of, of questions and, and, and listening and responding and not just kind of blindly taking it in, but really wrestling through it, knowing that this is how God is going to work and how we are going to grow. So we said that Jesus grew through godly parents, this commitment to worship, through this careful study of Scripture. But then the last thing here is that he also grew through submission to authority. Look at verse 51. It says, And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And so Jesus, who is fully God, enters willingly into submission, that he submits to, to God's law to redeem us. And then here it says that he also submitted to his parents, that he obeyed the fifth commandment of honor thy father and thy mother. And he did it perfectly through his entire life. But I think today, as it says that you know, he was submissive to them, that sometimes in our culture we think of the word to submit or submission as a kind of a bad word. But what we see from Jesus is that it's, it's not, that, that this willing submission to his parents' authority was a way in which he grew in wisdom. And so for, for children, Jesus was submissive to their parents, to his parents. And, and so there's a call for submission to, to our parents. And, and we're called to submit to other authorities as well, to whether it's bosses, as long as they're not asking us to do something that is wrong. And scripture even goes so far to say, be, be submissive to your governing authorities, to governments, whether we like them or don't like them. The scripture calls us to this posture of, of submission to authority, like Jesus. And, and that's at the, the heart of wisdom and at the heart of what it is to, to grow in wisdom as well. And so... Through all of these things, then, we see the, the true humanity of Jesus, that he grew through godly parents, through study of scripture, through submission to God-given authority. And then, really, we, we can say what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2, that Jesus did these things, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. But then, just as we close and, and wrap up today, now, I said that the main emphasis here from Luke is on this true humanity of Jesus, but he's not forgetting the fact that Jesus is not just any child. He's not just any prophet, that he is actually also truly, fully God. And we see that shining forth clearly, but yet in a subtle way. Look at verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished, and his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And so, you know, talking about submission, Jesus isn't being rude to his mother, but his mother shows the degree of you know, loving frustration of why have you done this to us? Why were you here? And, the, and, and Jesus responds with kind of bewilderment himself, saying, didn't you know this is where I would be? Where else would I be? <laughs> uh, and that he felt like it was completely obvious 
his mother and his father should have known. I mean, this was the, the reason that he went up to Jerusalem was to, to study, to, to prepare for his bar mitzvah, to prepare for his ministry, to grow in, in wisdom, to sit under teaching, to ask questions, to, to study that this is the reason that he was there, to go into the, the temple of the Lord that was the center of worship for Old Testament people. This is why he went up. So why else would he be anywhere else? But even as he says that, he points to his identity. He says, do you not know that I must be in my father's house? And some uh, translations, um, or even in my Bible, again, there's a footnote for that verse that says, about my father's business. Another way of translating the, the same thing. So he's saying, don't you know I should, I should be in my father's house? I should be about my, my father's business. And, and for Christians, we miss it because we're taught to say, my father, because we're from, from Jesus. But for, for an Old Testament Jew at this point, the Old Testament talks about God as the father of Israel. But the Old Testament never talks about God as, as my father, that kind of direct, I'm calling out to you as, as this special relationship where you are my father, I am your son. And so Jesus had what, what theologians call a messianic self-consciousness. And that's just a f fancy way of saying he knew who he was. That yes, he was learning, he was growing in wisdom, but he knew all along that, that he was the, the son of God, that he had a unique relationship to the Father like no other person. And that's why in Matthew 11, he says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so he's saying that, that I'm the Son like no one else, that I am I'm eternally with God, and in the beginning was the Word. He was God. He was with God. He, there was never a time when Jesus did not exist, that, that everything that can be said, all the attributes of God, apply to the Father and to the Son equally, that he's, he's the same essence, the Father is eternal, that the Son is eternal, that the Father is unchangeable, the Son is unchangeable, yet he takes on himself humanity to save us. And this is such good news because for us, in and of ourselves, we could not say my Father to God because we are people who have sinned. We have done things that are against God's law. That separates us from God. Scripture says that it brings death. And so in and of ourselves, apart from his grace, we are actually enemies of God. You can't say my father. But then what the Bible says and, and what scripture offers is because Jesus took on himself a real human nature as the eternal son of God, lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial death, rose again, that when we trust in him, our sin is counted to him, his righteousness is counted to us, and we are adopted into the family of God. And this is what Paul says in Romans 4. He says, but in the fullness of God time, God sent forth his son, his eternal son, born of woman, took on a human nature, born under the law, was submissive to authority, and why he did it to redeem those who were under the law and all of it so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so when we say the Lord's Prayer, we can say our Father, because Jesus brings us to the Father as the, the God-man. 
And even here in, in the Lord's Supper, we come to this meal as, as children who have been adopted into the, the family of God. We talk about the, the humanity and the divinity of Jesus that we see both here clearly in the Lord's Supper, that, that Jesus was really human, and so his body was just as real as this bread is real. Uh, his blood was just as real as this, this juice, that he was really actually human, and so he really actually died for our sin. But that also means that, that he, was, he was fully God, that, that he uh, redeemed us, that he, he saved us, that he could bear the, the weight of God's judgment against sin so that we could be adopted as, as sons or, or daughters. And so that, that's part of the reason that, you know, as Jesus sends into heaven, the confession of Scripture is that he's still God and man, even now, ruling and reigning, fully God, fully man. And so, yes, he's not bodily present with us because to be human is not to be present everywhere. But yet, because he's fully God, he's present here with us in a very unique way through his spirit to strengthen us, to grow us, to mature us in, in wisdom, spiritual stature, and in our walk with him. And so before we take this, though, let's take a moment and just profess the, the faith that we hold together. This is um, taken from the Apostles' Creed. We use these ancient statements of Christian belief because they encapsulate the heart of our confession of who is God, who is Jesus, what has he done for us. And it's the very thing I said that we're, we're sitting on the backs of these first centuries of the church. It says, read with me in page 9. 